this. In the beginning, there was radio. Turn your radio on, turn your radio on, and listen to the music in the air. Entertainment for the masses. You heard music, you heard events, uh, you heard a football game. Right now. At the twist of a dial. Technically tempo. The music was loud. The prizes were huge. And Rocktober was king. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the eighth wonder of the world. It's basically this intangible thing that reaches its hand down my throat. Through my esophagus. And just plays with the strings of my heart. Today, entertainment has evolved. Radio is yesterday's news. TV repeats itself into oblivion. And podcasting. Yeah, we're about to get started. It's the new black. So here on the Mojo Radio Show, we're giving our own nod to the rockingest month on the planet. Hey guys, this is John Karabi from the Dead Daisy. Hi, this is Cal Newport, author of Deep Work. This is Tate Fletcher, Kate Spice. Hi there, I'm Andrea Burke from the Canadian National Women's Rugby Team. I'm Batman. Hi, this is Ivor Davies from High South. And it's Rocktober on the Mojo Radio Show. Outstanding. Over the next 31 days, we'll take you from the sports field to the battleground, from the boardroom to the recording studio in celebration of all things Mojo, along with all the trimmings you'd expect. Starts now. Hey everybody and welcome to the Mojo Radio Show. Final week of Rocktober and we have, I think it's fair to say, we've interviewed some cracking guests and I could have say to finish up Rocktober, this week is no exception. Behind the console, Robbo, bring it, bring it home. Time to bring home Rocktober. Bring it's it been a big home. Month. We're on the final stretch. You can see the checkered flag. Early pop quiz, hot shot. Your favourite guest so far? Uh, today's, by far. <laughs> <laughs> That's soft. That is just well, so soft. It's an easy go-to, though. Let's be honest. It's yeah, a great yeah. interview. The Mojo Radio Show. Now, folks, if I sound a bit weird and Robbo, you can hit the Kleenex coming out of the tissue box because Robbo is very sad. I'm not in the studio. I am on the road. I'm up in what they call Bris Vegas, Brisbane, north of the border. I've got a few speaking gigs on the road. And um, what's really funny, mate, is this afternoon I'm heading to Byron Bay. True story. True, True story. story. Wow. <laughs> you should go and... Are you, are you catching up with Anna? <laughs> no, it's a fly-in, fly-out job. Oh, in fact, I'm busing in and then flying-out job too. Busing um, in. I've got to... Yeah, I've got to... Mate, uh, you gotta you gotta put the resilience of grid in there. Do the hard thing. Was either that or walk? You can't have um, the big red I, bus. I'm using it. Yes, I've got a speaking gig in Byron with a bunch of twenty corporate executives, twenty CEOs, and their wives. Uh, but no, I won't have time to see Anna. But I am going to go for a walk between the bus stop and the hotel, looking for that little guy in the orange <laughs> robes. <laughs> we promised we'd try to get him on. We forgot all about that. Anyway. 
Uh, it's been too much going on. So uh, the backstory is, folks, if you leave a review on iTunes for our little program for Rocktober, we will send you the Buddha Brew 2, which is a lovely blend of Byron Bay beans that our friends at Fish River Roasters, hello to Peter Harrison and all the team at Fish River Roasters, they're going to roast the beautiful, and it is actually an award-winning Byron Bay bean. We will roast it. We will pack it, we'll put it in a packet and we'll send it to you for free. If you leave us a review, let us know you've done it. So the idea is to meditate, rate, and then you can caffeinate. Little reminder, I'm still waiting to taste it. <laughs> so am I, actually. <laughs> the Mojo Radio Show. It's Rocktober. Hey guys, this is Malcolm and Joseph from Death Daisies. Hi, this is Ivor Davies from My South, and it's Rocktober on the Mojo Radio Show. I've got to say, I was a tad uncomfortable at the start of this interview. Were you? Why? Because this guy, this guy, Joe Navarro, spent 25 years at the FBI mm. working as both an agent and a supervisor. In the areas of counterintelligence and counterterrorism, catching spies. Now, Joe is an internationally recognized expert, consultant, author, and lecturer in the interpretation of nonverbal behavior. Wow, that's a fancy title. <laughs> yeah, and he, well, he's an expert on human behavior and, and kind of what goes on that we don't see and what's it telling him. And he's frequently in America. Hello to friends over there in the States. He's currently on the Today Show and Fox News, Good Morning America, and I heard him interviewed with our friend from week one of Rocktober, Ryan Hawke, and from the Learning Leader podcast, and I just loved it. And I thought he was great. I thought his content was great. So I wrote to Joe and said, look, I'm a bit of a fan. Is there any chance we could have a chat during Rocktober? He said, yes, he's on the line. Joe Navarro, welcome to the last week of Rocktober, mate. Uh, it's great to be here. I've, I've been looking forward to this for, for a month now. What, what's kept you? Yeah, we'll ask you the same question at the end and <laughs> yeah. see what happens. We, we can fix that. Um, <laughs> Joe, you've got an amazing background, which I just talked about, but when somebody asks you today what you do, how do you like to reply? You know, it's a, it's a tough question because half my time I, I spend writing. As you know, I, I just finished my 13th book and the, the other half I uh, I uh, I'm, I'm out there uh, lecturing or, or uh, the and and maybe what really stands out with my neighbors who a lot of them don't know what I've done for a living uh, think I'm a dog walker so <laughs> <laughs> I had I literally had somebody come up to me the other day and, and ask me, well, how much do you charge? <laughs> <laughs> it's like, uh, what's his name in Meet the Parents, the florist, the ex-CIA guy? Um, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Are you kidding me? Are you kidding me, fucker? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, you, you, you spend a lifetime catching spies, traveling all over the world, you know, multiple passports, all this stuff. And then some, some guy wants to know how much you charge for, uh, for walking <laughs> That's, that's my life. <laughs> <laughs> now, I just want to start here, Joe, because I find this absolutely fascinating because when you speak to people about their occupation and their skills, quite often it's something they've picked up as they've gone. So they're a business leader or they've been cast into the military or someone who's been, got an amazing backstory, but it happened during their world. But 
as someone who ended up in the FBI, this actually is a gift that you had as a child. You could read people as a kid. Just take us back to that time where you recognised or somebody recognised in you that you could read people as a child. Well, boy, that does take me back. It takes me back to, uh, you know, to uh, 1959 and the uh, the Cuban Revolution. I was born in Cuba and uh, everything was fine until it wasn't. And, uh, you know, I was there during the Bay of Pigs invasion. And it, it's, it, it's a funny thing. You, you go from being a child to... Um, having to become an adult when you become a uh, a, a refugee because um, you, you take on these responsibilities that normally a child doesn't uh, have to take care of, like protecting your sisters, uh, you know, watching out for these uh, soldiers that would park outside the house, uh, looking for my father who was uh, very much uh, anti Fidel Castro and and so forth, and so when we uh, w- we came to the United States as uh, as refugees, I, it was almost as if I was on on hyper alert, um, constantly looking at people. Obviously, not speaking the English language, only speaking uh, uh, Spanish, and for whatever the reason, I I just found that the 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 true lingua franca, what I could count on, um, was the body language of, of others. Whether you know you could trust them, you you whether or not they were friendly and so forth. And um, and my mother would would tell you that I was I was just constantly sort of maybe in in, in as a defense mechanism, constantly deciphering people. Um, almost obsessing over it, and um, and that's really how it started. And then you know, by the time I got to the university, um, it, it was something that I, I actually wanted to to, to read about uh, more in depth. You know, this is fascinating, Joe. When you and something I want to talk about during the show because I heard you interviewed with Ryan Hawke on the Learning Leader podcast, which I loved. Which is why I wrote to your publicist to say, look, can we? Can we chat with you? And one of the things I want to talk about is the value of observation in our world today. Hearing you talk about being a child and being on hyper alert, I think was the word you used, do you think that's where your skills observation came from and also in your own mind knowing how valuable it was as a skill? Well, that's a profound question. I I think no doubt um, that that I had a keen interest in observation and I I think early on it became one um, because of, uh, of the things that I had seen in Cuba. Um, you know, I was there when when the Bay of Pigs invasion took place, and and the, the, I, I can still remember the planes firing in the distance, and uh, that night the lights going out all over all over the country, and the darkness, and the secrecy, and the soldiers, and 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 so forth. And so I, I think when I came to to uh, to America. Um, you know, observation was just something that um, had either attached itself to me or had become a part of me. I I couldn't distance myself uh, from it, but it it certainly drove me because it, uh, you know, so often I would interrupt my parents and and say once in the United States, and I would say something like, "Uh, I'm not sure this this lady uh, uh, wants us to be here or there's something wrong or, or something like this. 
and um and so this this um this awareness but but i have to tell you um because i've i've researched this uh, over the years you know a lot of abused children uh who come from homes where where either there's a lot of fighting or there's abuse uh also become very hypersensitive to to body language because for them um you know the waking up in the morning and seeing is is dad in a good mood or is mom in in a good mood uh becomes critical and so i i don't think it's it's unique to me i think circumstances drove uh, uh drove this how that sort of i guess presented itself joe mm-hmm. is i understand as a teenager you could yeah. tell if a girl was interested in you and you could tell by looking at their <laughs> facial muscles the their eyes mm. and whether their pupils dilated so during mm. conversation you could go are you into into, into me or not <laughs> so at that age had yeah. to trans there was a, there was a necessity for you to have to do it and i think that point about you grow up where it's kind of life or death in a way, but it's also it's kind of let's just say survival, and then to then consciously use that with things like girls or life or school teachers. Do you consciously remember that period, or was that just something that unconsciously happened to you? Well, I I, I appreciate the 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 question. My my uh, only. Uh, girlfriend in high school would would tell you that my observation skills were completely wasted. Completely wasted. <laughs> <laughs> I was. I was. <laughs> I, uh, uh, I've never said this before. A- after about six months of hanging out together, she looked at me one day while we were at uh, South Beach, and she said, "Are you ever going to kiss me?" <laughs> so, so uh, yeah, I was kind of a social aardvark when it came to to that. But what what was interesting was is that I I was able to. I was very shy uh, at that time. I was able to pierce through and and look at others. Um, when it came to things that involved me, uh, it, it wasn't until later that that I I, I I developed more more of that skill. But you know, certainly uh, by the time I'm in college and I'm and I'm studying this um, because of my keen interest in it. And I'm realizing there's not a lot of science-based books on this subject, but you notice things, for instance, um, when girls are interested in you, when they play with their hair, they will play with it so that the inside of the wrist faces you. But if they don't like you, uh, immediately they turn their head hand around, and though they're still playing with their hair, the backside of the hand is is facing uh, towards you. Now, I, I've talked to some some real barracudas out there that that said <laughs> they've done really well just with that tell. <laughs> but uh, I I can tell you I didn't take advantage of it. <laughs> <laughs> so if we go from your time at school and then studying, what's really curious about your work? trajectory, Joe, is that the FBI approached you. You didn't even have to apply for a job. The FBI came to you and said, we want you to come and work for us. When you get that knock on the door and they want you to go, how, what made you believe in yourself that you would take that job? That must have been quite daunting to have them approach you. What, what gave you the belief 
that you could do the job? Well, it was uh, it, it was actually c- kind of scary because, uh, as you know from from the from the stories that are they're out there. At first, I didn't believe them. I, I, I the, when I got the phone call, I, I thought it was just some some people in the dormitory playing a trick. And then when the the two suits showed up, and I'm thinking, okay, this is this is serious, and they. They were very secretive. I mean, they just handed me a manila envelope and and they said, you have 30 days to fill this out. And uh, okay, so, you know, and and all the images I had of the FBI were based on television, you know, and and the movies and, and, and so forth. And then as I'm filling this out, they're asking a lot of questions and and they want to know everything going i mean they want to know everything going back to the day that my grandmother was born wow. i mean there's a, there's a lot to to, uh, to 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 fill out and then when you're accepted into the bureau and you know here i was 23 years old i was i was the second youngest agent uh, ever brought on board and i'm thinking Am I capable of doing this? Do do I have what what it takes? You know, you you have this image of of what FBI agents uh, uh, as archetypes do on 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 the movie screen, and uh, yeah, I, uh, I I had a lot of self doubts about uh, uh, about my my abilities, and and actually, I I think that's always good. I think that's always good because it keeps you humble. It, it keeps you, um, it, it keeps you wanting to learn and uh, and not get too far ahead of yourself. Funny you should say that. I got a mate of mine who's in the um, Australian Federal Police. He works in audio mm-hmm. forensics for them, and he's been yep. with them now for, jeez, uh, tw- uh, probably close to twenty years. And he's always been his big dread has always been having to go to court and give testimony because the same as you, he had those doubts that he wouldn't be able to answer the questions, blah, blah, blah. And literally six weeks ago, he had his first, first court case and he, he came out of the court afterwards and he rang me and he went, it just came out. Every, I, I answered everything and it just came out. I knew it all and blah, blah, blah. He said, I don't know what I've been so worried about. It's crazy, right? Well, it, it, it is crazy, but, but that's where good training and, uh, and, and good education comes in. And I have to tell you, the, 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 the FBI, when it comes to uh, preparing their agents, is, is, is really exceptional because um, basically you get three years of criminal law in about three months you you get unparalleled uh, firearms training uh, in all sorts of uh, of weapons. How to do a, how to do arrests safely. How to do searches safely. How to do uh, you know everything in a in a in a very safe manner. And so y- you build confidence. Um, but I'll tell you that the first time somebody comes to you and, and they came to me and they said, "Look, we have a, a, a they didn't even have video back then. They had thirty five millimeter." Uh, movies. We have a 35 millimeter uh, 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 movie of a, uh, a mafia guy, and we want you to break down their behavior and tell us what's going on. That's that's when you 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 feel like you've been punched in the stomach, and you wonder, can I can I really do this? And um, and it's 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 a it's an eye opener. If I the word you use was break it down, mm-hmm. I've seen a lot of your stuff on video. There are a lot of podcasts out there for interviews, you with Ryan, your books. Yep. 
Something that I heard which I thought broke down what you do to the most simplistic form, which is what we like it. We like it simple here on the show, Joe. But And you said <laughs> when you're doing your job, you're always looking for comfort or discomfort. Yeah. To me, that was very profound in its simplicity, yet I, I suspect there's a lot of sophistication behind it. Just run that for us. Yeah, and, and thank you for, for bringing it up because that is the, the, the essence of, of, of what I've been teaching for years is let's not complicate it. We, we humans, uh, from the time we're born, we begin to transmit, uh, whether we're comfortable or uncomfortable, we're, we're very binary. Now, within that, you know, we're, we're either crying or, or we're quite content. Within that, of course, there's a lot of uh, a, a lot of behaviors. Um, <clears throat> we know that we pacify ourselves uh, all day long. We naturally touch ourselves, scratch our faces, play with our hair, and. And these are things that the brain needs. But when any anytime there's any kind of psychological discomfort, these uh, pacifiers increase. But there's also behaviors that let us know that we are masking that everything is okay, but but uh, but but it's not. And I'll, I'll give you a, a simple uh, example of uh, someone is uh, asked a question and they immediately uh, reach up and begin to touch their neck, massage their neck or grab the front of their neck. I can tell you that there's an issue there because uh, invariably um, we tend to touch and cover our necks when when something is, uh, is, is bothering us, even if it's, if, if it's a memory. Or here's, here's a real subtle one. Um, <clears throat> someone uh, says something positive or answers in a positive manner, but just before they answer, the, the lip lifts up just slightly in, in, in the style that, uh, Elvis Presley, uh, uh, <laughs> if, you, if you remember that, that lift that sort of pulled, pulled yeah. up. Oh, uh, mama. Oh, yeah. Oh, oh yeah, exactly. <laughs> Although I have to tell you, you know, you were talking about having to explain things. I had to explain to somebody the other day who Elvis Presley was, but, but let's oh, not go no there. way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. But, uh, so, the this this little uh, archaic behavior, which um, in part is driven by the the nose muscle pulling up slightly, which says something is negative, even though I'm saying something positive, um, tends to uh, to be very accurate. So um, w- within that realm of comfort and discomfort, you know, you also have under comfort you have confidence, you have territorial displays, you have uh, power displays and um, and all these uh, positive behaviors, and then of course, under discomfort, um, it, you you have the uh, the opposite. I'll, I'll give you another one that you, you know you, you your boss comes in and says, um, "Hey, is that going to be done by by Thursday?" And and you you pull on your jacket as you answer. You ventilate yourself. No, it's not going to get done by Thursday. <laughs> <laughs> If you have to ventilate to answer a question, I can tell you there's an issue. That, the question is, well, what's the issue? And and that's where nonverbals have to be sort of uh, – you, you have to respect it for what it is and what it isn't. It can alert us that something is at issue. It can alert us that there's something wrong. 
but it can never really pierce uh, uh, the mind totally. Although there are some nonverbals, um, uh, you know, clearly, especially in courtship behavior. Uh, for instance, when the pupils dilate, uh, we have no control over the pupils, and and they dilate uh, completely when we see something uh, we really like or, or think is beautiful. It's interesting when we've got biscuits in the studio, Robbo's eyes quite often dilate, <laughs> and I've always wondered about that, Joe. But now, uh, now it's something obviously appeals to. Well, him. you know, it says a lot that every t- every morning you walk in the studio, Gary, and look at me, your eyes dilate. That tells me something too. <laughs> Nah, there's boys, a, lot, boys, a lot of love boys, in the room. I don't want. I don't want a big fight. <laughs> oh, Matt, you've started about a dozen by the time we get off this interview, anyway. <laughs> now, this is interesting, Joe. A question on that. So, you've said that if somebody's leg is bouncing, because I said to somebody recently and their leg was bouncing, or if they twiddle their thumbs or they scratch, what I heard you say was the brain requires it. A guy walks into the into the office and says, will this be done by five o'clock? And he moves his jacket. So there's obviously discomfort and the brain required that. Can we rewire our brains so that even though we know we're not going to get it done by five o'clock, we don't give tells or we give the opposite tells? I mean, is is this something where you have no control over the nonverbals and the brain requires it? Can you rewire your brain? I love the question because it, it, it goes to what good actors do. Good actors uh, mimic the behaviors that are needed for the scene, even though they, they may not, not feel it. Um, and, and the you know your listeners who, who have served in the military or, or in the police or law enforcement know that as soon as you put on that uniform, your posture changes – and you may be scared, and and I'll tell you, uh, I have been scared in many situations where I have been alone and have had to go in and make arrests, and um, and I had to fake uh, that I was confident. So th- there are ways, and you know, the military teaches you uh, to do that. Acting uh, does that experience, um, but I think for the mo- for the most part. Uh, my wife would tell you that I am at an absolute easy read. I don't try to to, <laughs> to, to sit there and, and mask it. I mean, she'll look at me and 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 she'll say, um, "You want to go to this restaurant?" And my lips will compress. And she says, "Okay, what is it that you don't like?" <laughs> and I, you know, it, 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 you know, okay, um, well, we've been there a couple of times. All right, so it takes so much energy to fake that I think most people just, you know, don't, don't do that. And even in poker, I, I've always said, you know, you, you can have a poker face, um, but it's very rare to have a, a, a poker body. I mean, I, I've seen some players who will sit there with this just very stoic, uh, a face and uh, and meanwhile they're they're sitting there with their fingers interlaced on top of their cards, but their thumbs are popped up uh, like a uh, like a turkey button that's letting you know it's cooked. And uh, it, it you know we we only defy gravity when things are positive. So um, there's many ways that we leak. Uh, our sentiments and our feelings. Yeah, obviously, some some people are are better at uh, at hiding, but uh, for the most part, 
uh, we, we don't. So before we started recording, folks, we were talking to Joe about being in front of bad guys. And about three or four weeks ago on the show, we had a real privilege of interviewing a guy called Noel Razor-Smith, which was, it was a great show, wasn't it, It was one of our best. I certainly believe that. And he'd done 200 armed robberies, spent 32 years in Her Majesty's prisons throughout. I mean, he was, he was, it was a cracking show. So you were saying, Joe, you've sat in front of some pretty bad people. And I'm wondering what, what, what came to mind for me is you walk into, and we see those scenes on television. You walk in the room as the FBI expert and you sit in front of somebody who's just bad, just bad, bad, bad. Did that, did that get to a point where it intimidated you so much where you basically lost your stuff, where you sat there and all the front, the training, the military expertise you had to hide your tells, you completely lost it because this guy out-body languaged you? <laughs> well, uh, uh, out-body languaged? Yeah, why not? Let's make it a word. It's, uh, it's like <laughs> the English uh, language. I, I, it's great, great cool. Great question. I was fortunate. I never really lost it, but but I'll tell you this. I remember arresting uh, uh, up in near uh, one of the uh, Indian reservations on the Colorado River. I arrested a guy who um, had been abusing children and uh, and filming them. And I had to drive for three hours back to headquarters with this guy, and it was really tough to 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 uh talk to this uh, this man as i drove being a father being being you know a, a, a human and knowing that this individual had abused children i found that uh, that tested me the whole way there was there was no way that i that i could just see myself uh, being as jovial with him uh, as I had been with, with with other individuals, but here's an interesting thing that happened along the, the way. I never I never criticized him. I never uh, you know you know said anything untoward him, and he began to reveal things to me as we drove that we didn't know about. And I asked him later. Uh, before he pled guilty, why he decided to, to talk to me um, along the way. And he, and he said, because you never made fun of me and other people did. And um, so I, I didn't, uh, so I didn't lose it, but I'll tell you what, I have been bamboozled and, and the biggest bamboozle that ever took place by was by a woman spy. Her name was Kelly church. And she fed me, I'm not sure what word you can use uh, down under. <laughs> in, in Miami, we call it El Toro Poo Poo. <laughs> <laughs> we just call it the biggest load of bullshit. Yeah, yeah we're pretty straight up and down. El Toro Poo Poo. That's, <laughs> that's, that's going on the studio wall. Absolutely. <laughs> I mean, this, this woman was a psychopath and she misled us for a year. Now, keep in mind that in espionage, the evidence is usually overseas. So we were talking to her in Macon, Georgia, and for us to prove the case, it took us a long time. But she could spin these tales 
and and they were so believable guys i mean we were we were taking yellow pad after yellow pad full of notes and and individuals and it was like that that uh that scene from um uh, you know, where the, where the, uh, uh, the, the guys are all, uh, lined up. Um, I forget the name of the, the, the movie now, but, but it, it, it was, it, it was all an invention. It was, it was, every bit of it was, was an invention, but she knew that the evidence was, uh, uh, was, was overseas. And so, um, yeah, you you think, oh well, you know, agents are infallible. Infallible. Joe Navarro. Well, he was the expert on nonverbal. What happened there? Well, it's uh, humanity. <laughs> it's just, uh, you must you must really admire someone like that, Joe. I mean, I hearing you speak about Kelly Church, you, you you really must. There must be times where you look back through your career and go, you know what? I really, although. That was a hard case. You really must admire someone who's got the imagination and the ability to outmaneuver, in some cases, the FBI. That That is quite something, isn't it? Yeah. And by the way, the movie I was thinking of is The Usual Suspects. Um, you know, we, we were talking before the, sh- the show, and, and, and I said some of these individuals are really fascinating, and it, and it is because they can spin such a yarn they can provide so much detail. They can um, they can overwhelm you with so many facts that are hard to dispute because you can't get to uh, to the point where you can actually go out and and, and prove them. And so, uh, yeah, no, it was uh, uh, some of these uh, folks were 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 really interesting. And and in the end, you know, you put them in prison, you put them away for thirty years, and. Uh, and every once in a while, you get a, a a a Christmas card from them saying, "Hey, how are you? And what's going on? And is everything?" <laughs> hey, being the driver of the bus, I, I want to take a quick right hand turn here just for a second, and and explore something you were talking about a second ago. Working for the F, working for the FBI, you see the worst of the worst. Surely, the 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 worst criminals, the worst crimes, the whole gamut. What I want to know is when you're investigating those crimes, you must also see some horrific things. And as this show is all about personal mojo, I'm interested to know how the hell do you disconnect from that? How do you turn that off and not let it affect you? How do you not go home and, and just, you know, see it constantly? Or maybe you do. I don't know. that. How do you deal with that? Uh, well, I can tell you how some guys did it. 80 proof alcohol. Um yeah. Uh, th- and that was that was a real problem for 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 a lot of people is they uh, self medicated. I you know I think every profession, whether you're uh, an emergency medical technician or you're a fireman and you're responding to uh, to a horrific scene or any any of these emergency responders. Um, you're, you're looking at things that you, you really, we, we weren't meant to look at and certainly not meant to look at over and, and over again. Um, I know that, um, I was fine with, um, with, with going to autopsies. I, I had a lot of autopsies that I had to d- deal with when I was working, um, 
criminal matters on the Indian reservations. Um, and they were fine uh, when they were adult, but the first time I had to go do, uh, to, uh, to, to see the autopsies of two babies that had, um, well, I won't even describe what happened. Um, I, I could begin to feel that it was, it was taking a toll on me. And, uh, and, and, and these things over time do take a toll on you. Um, and I, and I don't think there's, uh, and I'll, I'll, I'll say this, there is nothing wrong with finding help. If, if no matter what your profession is, if you are, uh, overwhelmed, um, here in the United States, this is very sad. We, we were averaging uh, one FBI uh, suicide a year. The military, I think, uh, is averaging one suicide a day. Um, and um, so um, e even in the business sector, um, there's just too much of this going on. And, and I would encourage anyone, um, there's nothing wrong with, with seeking help. I sought help. Um, because, you know, in the, in the end, I remember going to the, the therapist and saying, well, let me get this straight. You were at the Bay of Pigs invasion. Uh, you were stabbed, uh, when you were 17, you've been shot at and, uh, and, and you've had all these things and, and you don't think this would ever affect you. <laughs> you, you, you just don't realize uh, the accumulation of, uh, of, of these things. So it's, I, I, I think for all of us, it's something that, uh, we have to do. And I, and I think that's part of that, that having that mojo that says, uh, this is okay. And, uh, and I should do it. Joe, when you walk into a room for an interrogation or you walk to meet a friend to, have a cup of coffee or you're doing a lot of speaking now. There's a lot of uh, clips on YouTube of you presenting at big conferences. When you are walking into a situation, what do you, what are the top things you consciously think about to build comfort and rapport with your audience, whether it be one person or a thousand. What, what are you consciously thinking about to build comfort? Boy, that's uh, that's a tough one because when I when I come in, uh, whether it's one on one or one on a thousand, the first thing I, I'm assessing for is what is the mood. Uh, I know enough about the brain that you have to, um, you know, when we first started talking today, my the first thing I did was assess. Well, what is their mood? What what is what what are the emotions going on? And, um, and, and I think a lot of times we, we think too much of ourselves, you know, how am I going to be funny or how am I going to, uh, you know, fit into this group and so forth when actually our first responsibility I think is to assess, um, what is, what is this group like? And, um, I'll tell you, I, I hate it when they book me to speak at one thirty in the afternoon, it's let, you know, everybody's back lunch. It's very, it's very hard. And so I walk into the room and I just see everybody is just kind of uh, falling asleep. And, uh, you know, I don't try to say anything funny or clever or whatever. So I just make everybody stand up, stretch. And then, uh, I say, all right, everybody give each other the worst handshake you can imagine. And then, <laughs> and then it just goes from there and, uh, it livens everything up. And I, I, I don't try to be, uh, uh, too clever that way, 
But I think for all of us who, you know, we're all in the people business. And so I think, you know, we, we have to uh, prioritize that it's the people we're meeting, it's our guests, it's our, uh, our clients and so forth, that we need to be sensitive to, to them. Because, you know, a lot of times you're in a good mood, but, you know, it took them forever to drive there. They had problems parking uh, maybe, you know, they spilled coffee on themselves. And, and so now their mood is not as, as exactly what we expected. And so, uh, and we know that emotions always trump logic. Um, the, the, the example I always give is remember always, whenever you get into an argument, half an hour later, you remember all the clever lines you should have said. And the reason for that is, is limbic hijacking. The emotions take over, and so we don't think as, uh, as clearly. So take care of the emotions, take care of the sentiments, and, uh, and then get down to... Uh, you just said you got the audience to turn and give the other person the worst handshake ever. How much, how much do you tell from a handshake, Joe? How much is in... How much does a handshake communicate? Yeah, you know, it used to be a lot easier because we all lived in very small neighborhoods and, and we kind of n- know each other. Um, you know, I was just in New York where uh, I had people in the audience from uh, from India. I had people in the audience from Bulgaria. I had people in the audience from, from Germany and from, uh, you know, Chicago and everybody's handshake was was uh, slightly different. So I, I think the old adage about, uh, well, you know, he gave us a really weak or really strong handshake. I, I think those days are over because, um, you know, when you when you go towards the east, I mean, everything fairly much to the east of uh, of uh, Istanbul, um, the the handshakes are are, uh, are are not as robust, let's say, as maybe someone from Chicago or uh, or New York and 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 so forth. So I I don't put too much emphasis on that anymore. I put more emphasis on uh, social intelligence and being able to mimic that handshake um, that uh, is required. You know, you you have uh, you have the royals uh, visiting there this 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 week, and uh, you know they're going to have to shake thousands of hands, and uh, and no one's going to be impressed. Uh, it, it, you know, with if, if you know Harry is squeezing uh, uh, juice out of a hand. Come on, uh, we the those. Those days are really uh, very much over. I, I think we, we need to do it right. Uh, we need to do it properly, and uh, and we have to be, uh, do it uh, mindfully. You know what we apparently are interested in, though, Joe, is Megan's belly, because every time I turn on the TV or look at a newspaper, there's a bloody photo or a, some video footage of her <laughs> belly, and I think, I've had five kids. I know what a pregnant belly looks like. I don't need to see it. Thanks, though. <laughs> well, you'll be able to ask her next week because she'll she'll be on. She's a special guest of the Mojo Radio Show <laughs> oh, next wow, week. That's so a surprise. And, um, what, no, what's a hug, actually, what's... she was going to be a special guest. <laughs> <laughs> there's your non-verbals. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> well, there's NSA listening in. No, listen. <laughs> the, uh... <clears throat> 
you know, the, uh, the I mean, imagine every minute of your day outside is being photographed. Yeah, oh, yeah. couldn't deal with and that. That's yeah. old really, really, uh, really fast. You know, but, you know, here, here we're talking about, here we're talking about the, the, this royal couple. And, uh, and look how much we appreciate their nonverbals. Um, they, they, they really have, uh, notice how, when they talk to children, how they tilt their heads. Um, you know, one of the things I, I talk to business people about is one of the gestures that we can do to guarantee more face time is to uh, merely just tilt your head slightly and, uh, and you're perceived as more endearing, but more importantly, it increases the amount of time someone is willing to, uh, to talk to you. Joe, just on... One of the things that I really wanted to ask you about was observation. And it's funny, it's been a bit of a theme through the show for the last couple of months. And we've got a former point man for SWAT coming up on the show. And I remember talking to, his name is Dave Acosta, who's a fascinating character. And I remember in the conversation, we talked about his his way of making this, or uh, he's in tactical response. And so when he's at the front end as a point man, he would also, he would go through what he called ADA. So he said there was, you had to have awareness, then you had to make the decision, and then you take action. The point that we spoke to Dave about was the awareness bit is you have to be aware, in which case you have to look around and observe what's going on around you at all times, and then should a situation happen, obviously observe what's happening in that situation. You you have been recognised as being somebody who is at the top of the game in observation. Is that a skill we can learn? And if it is, how do we improve, like tangible things we can do to improve our skills in observation. Thanks for asking that, because there are things we can do. You know, the, the first thing is put the digital device away and stop walking off the sidewalk and into cars. That's that would be the, that would be the first one. Um, one of the things that I used to practice with is um, I would walk through a parking lot and. Uh, tease myself, can I identify how many red cars, white cars, blue cars, black cars as quickly as possible? And when you first do it, and it's a fun game, when you, when you first drive in, you're, you're doing it methodically. Okay, one, two, three, four. Here's what happens. Over time, you, you, the, what's called myelation takes place. You're, you're, the, the wires inside the brain become hardened. You get to the point where you can walk into a parking lot and say, okay, there are 11 white cars, there's four red cars, there are six black cars in an instant. Now, were there times when I was one car off? Yeah, but rarely. (laughs) And so you begin to train yourself to, to observe that, to have situational awareness. When I walk into a room, where are the entrances? Where are the exits? Where are the windows? Is there a fire extinguisher here? Now, people say, come on, Joey, you, you know, you're ruining the best mountain view by reducing it to light on the optic nerve. Yeah, I am. Um, but you can train yourself to scan a room very quickly and, and pick out that one person. 
Um, you know, Secret Service does the same thing. They will scan a crowd and they teach themselves to pick out that one person, the only one that's not smiling or the only one that has a really weird smile when everybody else is. Uh, uh. So you you look for normalities or what's normal, then you look for the the uh, the odd or the abstract. But you can also teach yourself to uh, – to really break down a, a room or or even your your outdoors, um, the other th the you know um, one I, I I always teach uh, when when I'm working with uh, with uh, females is if if uh, do a, a quick uh, awareness look around and if you see anybody vectoring. Uh, in such a way that eventually they will be, you and they will be at the same spot, um, then there's something wrong there. Because normally most people will, will you know, pace at different uh, speeds and, and so forth. And so your brain can pick up on, uh, on these things. And the same thing with the face. You know, you do a quick scan of the face. What's in the forehead? What's in the eyes? What's the nose? What's the lips? What's the chin doing? And, uh, you know, at first it takes effort, but over time, boy, it just, it just comes at you where now you're doing two, three, five, ten, a whole room at once. And, um, and, 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 and so it runs like software in the background. You don't really think about it. And, um, and, and uh, you know, and it can be fun and enjoyable. It's gold. Yeah, it right? gold. That's gold. gold. Joe, you talk about face-to-face -face is probably the, the key way to get the nonverbals. And it's something that I've seen and heard you talk about a lot. I'd be curious to know, you are going into the corporate world now and you're getting briefed on jobs. You are going to speaking gigs and you're meeting corporate executives on a regular basis. Based on your skills in observations, what are you seeing as something that's happening in the corporate culture that perhaps hasn't been talked about yet? So with the tells you are seeing, are we becoming more and more anxious, uh, insecure, disempowered? Are we becoming more aggressive? Like what's your feeling, broadly speaking, of the corporate world and your observations now? Well, uh, boy, that, you know, no one has ever asked me that. And I'm, uh, of all the interviews I've done over the years, and I, and I love the question because there are some things that have changed over the years. You know, in corporations, there used to be a, um, um, you know, you, you graduated through uh, different stages uh, every 10 years, you know, you, you grew through the organization and, and finally in your fifties and sixties, you, you became CEO. One of the things that I'm finding is that we have, we're, we're, we're seeing a lot of young people who are all of a sudden immensely successful. They've created uh, wonderful uh, companies. Uh, I've used I use their products, but they have gone from high school and college to that inventive uh, period in their life, and now they're on top of a, a company, but they have the behaviors of a college student. 
And um, that needs to be, you know, ameliorated right away because the more senior you are in an organization, the broader your uh, gestures should be, but they also should be smoother. You should be able to have a command presence and a command of the stage. And what we're finding, um, and and this affects these uh, these relatively young people who when they go in for loans or when they go in for uh you know private investment and so forth um th- sometimes they come off as immature because they haven't developed uh these uh nonverbals that that say hey you can rely on me I, you know I know w- what I'm doing and it's because so much has happened uh, so quickly, I certainly see this. I've consulted over the last, I guess, eight years with uh, a few companies out of uh, uh, San Francisco, Silicon Valley, and uh, and and this is one of the things that 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 stands out that there haven't been the decades we used to have to develop those skills to where now you can have that mastery of, uh, of the stage that, um, you know, when you, when you look at Steve Jobs, look how, you know, people think, oh, well, he, you know, he was always that way. No, um, he developed that skill uh, over, the, over time. And it's something that needs to be developed because I can tell you it affects the stock market. Um, you know, you uh, look, look what happened just a few weeks ago with Tesla and uh and just just a few photographs of the ceo of, of tesla uh the you know the 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 stock fell i think 6 or 10 points o- o- overnight just on the nonverbal so it, it, it's nothing to scoff at it's it's but this i would say this is the number one issue that that i'm seeing is um very smart young people uh but their nonverbals have not caught up with them uh, as quickly as as their uh, financial success has. So one of those people gets in front of a group of investors, or you have a guy listening to the show who is the chief engineer of a power company, and he's going to stand in front of 20 workers and brief them on tomorrow's job. You've got a CEO who maybe stands in front of the corporate culture of his organization, 800 people in the room, where you've got a young entrepreneur who's presenting to their staff and they are that person out of college, got a cracking idea, there's 12 staff. That person, he or she is standing in front of a group. What, when you're sitting in that group, looking at that person present, Mm -hmm. what are the top two or three tells that give you the the non-verbals that this person actually is in control, has actually got it together? Yeah. Um, really easy to pick up. The first one is the the ease with which they answer questions. Uh, there's no stumbling. There's no hesitation. There's no clearing of the throat before they answer. Um, the, the answers have been rehearsed or they're very well prepared for them. The, number two is when they sit down, um, they don't look like they're, you know, they're, they're, uh, they're a church with their hands cupped in front of them, prayer-like, and so forth, they claim the territory in front of them. And this is both men and, and, and women. They feel very confident 
um, with with their body language uh, uh, about what they're uh, what they're dealing about. You when you look at their eyes, you can see the eagerness and uh, uh, there. You know the the eyebrows are arched as they talk. Uh, eyebrow arching is a a very positive gravity-defying behavior um, that reflects how positively we feel about any one thing, and and so you you begin to see this constellation of behaviors, and you say, you know, this is a young person, but boy, I, I'm really impressed. They really have uh, their act together, and part of it is yes, the words and the message, but it's also the delivery. Um, there's, uh, you know, there's a show I watch on television, Shark Tank, and um, <laughs> it's and it's about people that go before these uh, these um, uh, these investors, and and you see the, the the people that are just unprepared, and and you already know from the get go they're going to have problems um, because nonverbally they themselves don't believe in themselves. Um, and I, and I think, you know, for your listeners, I, I think one of the greatest things I, I learned from, from studying, uh, for instance, Winston Churchill is he rehearsed everything. He rehearsed everything that he would say the next day. And so when it would came, come out, it, it would sound brilliant, but that's what gave the people confidence. He had rehearsed this. We know that at dinners and at parties, he would rehearse different lines to see, you know, how they would float. And then he would try them out, um, you know, uh, with the public. Um, and he always sounded great. Yeah, because he, he rehearsed them. And, and I think that's something that we don't do enough. I think we, we, we say, well, you have a meeting tomorrow. Well, I'll just show up. One of the things I, I teach, one of the things that I teach is you tell everybody that's going to attend that meeting that they only have seven minutes, not five, not ten, seven. And what that tells them is, oh, they've got to be prepared with that message because they only have seven. I mean, they can divide it up any way they, they want, three and four, two and five. But I got to tell you, it's, they're not going to get any more. And what happens is they walk in with a different kind of confidence. Well, that confidence comes because that night they were sitting there you know, wondering, how, how am I going to deliver this in the morning? And so th- that confidence comes from the the uh, the uh, the introspection and from the rehearsal. Here's the promo, Gary. Gold. Oh, it's, it's good. This, is, this gold. is gold. Um, Joe, you okay, are a fan of wisdom. Two gold and one out. <laughs> <laughs> You're on the top step of the podium, mate. Hat trick, mate. Um, Here we go. <laughs> so you you are a fan of Winston Churchill, and I know you've read maybe a dozen books on Churchill. Yep. On with all the study you've done on Churchill, mm-hmm. what's the most profound learning you personally took from his story that you've applied to your own life? I think the 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 the, the most profound one I think was that, um, and and it wasn't said by him; it was actually said by Wittgenstein, who said that the limits of my language are the limits of my world. Uh, Winston Churchill had a remarkable vocabulary. As you know, he was a news. He had uh, worked in the newspaper business. He he was a writer and so forth. He understood language, and he understood the power of language. And uh, you know, I don't 
you know, I don't make myself out to be in any way anything close to that. But I can tell you that as a writer, uh, you know, 13 books now, when I fight for words, I sit there and I say, what can I say that will move someone? And invariably, um, words can move you know, I mean, th- think, th- think, think of it, you know, to this day, I can still hear Martin Luther King saying, I have a dream, mm. comma, that one day, comma, I mean, who writes like that? Gifted people write like that because they understand that the, the, the right words at the right time when, uh, when uh, President Lincoln at Gettysburg said, you know, you have to remember he's in front of, 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 a, of, of a crowd that less than 1% uh, of that crowd made it past the sixth grade. And he said four score and seven years ago. And it's like, whoa, where's this coming from? This crowd had to sit up and pay attention and say, okay, let's do the math. That's the, uh, okay, 48 years. He understood, one, how to get attention, but two, how to deliver a message. What people forget is that the speaker before uh, Lincoln uh, spoke for two hours, Edward Everett, and, and delivered basically the same message, but he spoke for two hours. Lincoln delivered it in a very short tweet of two minutes, 26 seconds. And that's why we remember it. And and I think, you know, to your question, what do I remember about uh, Churchill is, um, yeah, he knew uh, well over 24,000 words, but he knew how to use them effectively. And I, and I think we can all benefit from that. Joe, you, you are a lifelong learner, and I've heard you talk to Ryan Hawke about this on his show. What are your learning rituals? Because obviously to write as many books as you have and to be at the top of your game, creative outputs require creative inputs. How do you set learning into your day? Um, You know, in many ways, I'm very disciplined. I was very lucky. Yeah, I I came from a very poor family, but my my mother uh, said to me, I don't care uh, how late you stay up as long as you're reading. And, um, and so I, I've always had a great love of, of learning. And um, I, I read a, a wide variety. I try to read about two books a week. Um, so that comes out to about a thousand books uh, a decade. And, um, and I'm pretty good at, at, uh, at maintaining that ritual of, uh, of just reading. And, and not just in any one area. Um, I, I read in a, in a wide variety of, uh, of, of areas and, uh, and people ask me, well, why, you know, it's like, well, if I can just use one idea, one thought, uh, what you guys call gold, uh, from, <laughs> from, from, from just one gifted person, I'm learning, I'm learning. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm slow on the uptake, but, but trainable at, at 65, I'm trainable, um, I, 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 I love to know what other people have learned, and uh, and there's such a world out there of 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 inf- or, you know people that have experienced things that I never will, and I want to know about them. 
and, uh, you know, and, and why read? Because it enriches your life just, just for that. Speaking of one of the great authors of all time in the business or corporate world, Stephen Covey, who wrote the seven habits of highly effective people gave you a tip uh, relating to a three by five card. Do you still carry that card with you? I have it right in front of me in my drawer. I have it right here. And uh, uh, you, you can hear it. Can, can you hear that? <laughs> yeah. So I was, I was at Brigham Young University and Stephen Covey, he was not famous yet, was giving a lecture and I audited uh, his lectures because everybody talked about what a great speaker he was. And uh, so this is way before he became famous. And, and he said, just do this one thing carry a three by five card in your pocket and write down everything that you need to do every day. And, uh, and to uh, anybody that runs into me and I run into a lot of people and they say, do you have a three by five card? And absolutely. And I show it to them, uh, to this day, uh, it's the first thing I do in the morning. It's the last thing I do at night. What am I going to do tomorrow? And it's amazing how much you can get done in a day. You know, people ask me, well, how, you know, you've written 13 books in 14 years. How do you do that? Well, you, you have to be disciplined. You have to be a tremendous discipline. And the only way to, that I know how to do that is, is uh, to, 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 to make a list, including you got to walk that dog at 9 a.m. <laughs> it's funny, you know. How much do you charge man, for that? <laughs> my old man's 74 and sort of ran his own reasonably successful small business. But he still carries, he, he was a big proponent of having a, a little pocketbook in his pocket and he'd write down, you know, what he needed to do that day. And at 74, retired and all the rest of it, he still does it. He still has that notebook in his top pocket. You know, uh, Thomas Edison, uh, the the great inventor, um, he was, uh, he had little slips of paper everywhere in all his pockets. uh, And, uh, and that's how uh, he he got, he got by. Yeah. I think there's a lot to be said for, you know, for, for disciplining ourselves, by uh, by by making uh, by making lists, uh, the the analog process of just writing down your ideas, I I think are are very useful. Judd, I'm conscious of your time. You've been very generous with your time with us today. It's a couple of quick things before we finish. There, I think we said this before we started recording, but there is, and also we've touched on it during the show, that there is certainly. A, a dark epidemic, not only in our country, but in every country where people are not okay. And we've got a, a campaign that runs very successfully here called Are You Okay? And there's an Are You Okay Day. And when we get people on to talk about people who aren't doing well, maybe depressed, they're suffering anxiety, I'm always curious about how you get behind, behind the yum fine. So even if you come home at night and your partner has not had a good day, you've got a sense it's not good. How are things? Yeah, yeah fine. Your kid comes home from school, they say, yeah, I'm fine. And you you kind of have a sense that it's not. And then you bump into a mate at the pub and you just, I don't know, something's off and you say, yeah, okay, yeah, man, I'm fine. Yeah. What are the nonverbals that we could pick up on where someone is not fine 
that gives you the confidence then to sort of probe? Yeah, I... One of the things I was taught early in the FBI when I was trained by uh, one of the great uh, uh, clinicians in forensic psychiatry was uh, he said, look, you can give you can give people tests all the time. But one of the best ways to assess for depression is uh, notice that uh, they can't stand up straight, that they're downcast that they look like the world, uh, the weight of the world is, is, is on their shoulders. Um, and you know, these things are, are certainly uh, clues. I think when we know people, we can sense that something is wrong. Let's, let's not try to become experts on body language. We just sense that there's something wrong. I think that's when we begin to talk and I don't think it's useful to just immediately address and say, oh, well, you know, what's wrong? And then they pour their heart out. I think what's useful is just to begin a dialogue. And as a good friend of mine, Steve Ross said, uh, Ross said to me one day, he says, you know, Joe, you call me anytime. Let's just talk and let's talk about whatever you want to talk about. Um, we don't need to talk about how you're feeling, but let's just, but let's just talk. And, uh, maybe the intro is to talk about sports or to talk about politics or, or whatever, but just get people to, uh, to, 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 to begin to talk. Um, I think that goes a long way to, uh, opening channels of, uh, empathetic communication. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to throw out another gold. Uh, because I think it's, it's terribly important. I mean, like this, this conversation is terribly important for all of us because, you know, we've already mentioned some of the stats in, well, FBI or the military, but just in people in general, it's, it's, yeah. it's a critical thing. And just to lighten us up before we finish, Joe, one thing we, we like to understand as parents ourselves, I'd be curious to know how, how have you gone about developing observation and curiosity in your own children and or how would you think that parents could, as a skill, improve our children's ability to observe and be in the moment, look around, and or be curious to lean into conversations? I so appreciate this question because every day uh, when I go to the YMCA to go swim and I see children running around happily and they're demonstrating their skills to their parents. I want parents to look up and and stop looking at their electronic devices and look at mm. those children because they grow up so fast. One of the things that we can do is, you know, when your child gets excited about, hey, I just caught a lizard or I just caught a, you know, a butterfly, get excited with them. This, this mimicry of emotion goes a long way to establishing long-term um, uh, channels of communication. Um, get excited, be curious, answer their questions for heaven's sake. Uh, how many times have we heard, you know, stop asking questions? No, have that child ask a question. How does an airplane, you know, fly? I there's a mother the other day at the airport, and she took the time to say, you know, the 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 air goes over the wing and it causes lift, and and you could see the child looking outside and the 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 the, the sheer joy of knowing. 
we need to listen to children. We need to sit down with them. And rather than if, if, if you take it, make this another gold, don't sit in front of the child every time you want to talk to them. Sit next to them. You're going to find that by sitting next to them, they're going to open up in ways that by merely sitting in front of them, uh, you know, I see a lot of parents that they, they ask their children, well, how's your day? And they look like drill sergeants. Don't do that. Sit down with a child uh, and and let things open up in the same way that they they would with uh, w- with a friend. And I, that would be my uh, uh, if you take nothing away today. Please take that with you. There's the hat trick, Gary. Three golds. Cha-ching. Yeah, I think he's done it. I think he's uh, he's up for his, he's an over, overachiever. He's with the FBI, for goodness sakes. He's, a, he's an overachiever. Um, Joe, I've just got one final question for you, and this may be I, – I'm not sure how to uh, frame this. Hmm? Non-verbals, a lot of what you've spoken about today have been the tells – when it's terribly powerful when you see people, the power of observation, curiosity. Yep. As an FB, former FBI expert at the top of your game of the FBI and now a best-selling author, can you tell anything through conversations and or interviews or telephone conversations that give you a sense because you can't see us, thankfully, but you can get a sense through this show or through any telephone conversation with a client. Are there tells in conversation that mean you are actually listening and you are in the conversation as opposed to going through the motions? Oh, sure. Uh, You know, just... Uh, 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 both of you are great examples of that. Just just listen to the way that you interact, the the how you jump in, how you follow on, how you are uh, ready ready to re- respond. Um, you you can you can you can tell a lot. Um, your breathing rate, how quickly you breathe, uh, how excited you are. Um, you know, people say, well, you can't tell a lot over the phone. No, actually, you can. You can tell an awful lot. And uh, and so, uh, you know, I, I, I teach that, you know, if, if it's important, don't sit, stand. Um, make sure that uh, you're, you're leaning against something so your arms are way spread out as you're talking on the phone. And, uh, and the other thing is – Unrestrict your hands. We know from the research that hand gestures are part of communication. It's not separate. Make sure that you can gesture. Um, use a headset because the minute we restrict hands, we actually restrict thoughts and words. And uh, so, yeah, there's a lot we can do you know, even over the phone. I'm so glad you said that because my biggest memory of school, I went to a, a private school here in Australia was being told when you, when you talked to a crowd, don't fidget. You know, it was like, it was always don't, don't sit still, don't move your hands, don't do this, don't do that, blah, blah, blah. But then you get out into the real world and you talk to people and, you, and you're told to express yourself, move your hands. Do, and I've always thought, well, hang on, which one's, which one's right? <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, you paid a lot for an education that restricted your, yeah, uh, your arm movement. Yeah, totally. Uh, yeah, and I think, I think it shows too, yeah. Joe. Well, look, I, I'm adopted by, I, I was adopted by my, my parents when I was like three days old, so I don't know my heritage, but 
if you look at me, you, you know, you would sort of say sort of Italian, Greek, something like that. And, and they're always talking with their hands. So it's like, it's like tying your hands behind your back and trying to talk is impossible. Well, you know, they, they did some research uh, a few years ago, and what they did is they t- took average speakers, but unbeknownst to them, they restricted their hands, and they did that by having them hold an object. The minute they r- restricted their hands, they noticed that uh, they were slower to answer, they used fewer words, and that their cognitive ability was affected. Oh, there you go. So me sitting here fiddling with my back scratcher that my daughter bought me for my birthday a couple of months ago is probably not a bad thing then. Fiddle away. <laughs> hey, listen. I, 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 I can't Am I still let, at three? Am I still at three gold? You've still Am got I three. Still I think you're getting close to four. You haven't, you, haven't, you haven't stepped off the podium. I've got to ask you one question. Though. This is right off the reservation, but I can't talk to an FBI guy and not ask this question. What what's the one movie, one show, one scene from a movie that you've watched as an FBI guy and gone, yep, that nails it. That that's exactly what happens. That that's got no Hollywood involved. I, the the closest one is this new TV show about the profiling unit, and I forget the name of it, but it just started last year, and uh, it was about the original profilers. Uh, how they started the research. Uh, I think it's called Mind Games, and uh, that is as close as to uh, to what it was really like. Okay. Very. Yeah. I have to look for that one. So, Joe, where do people go to find out more about you? And you have got a recent book out. Tell us about the book and where people go to find your books and find out more about you. Well, they come to you. <laughs> they come to you to find out about me. Uh, isn't that obvious? Yeah. MojoRadioShow.com.au, that would be, yeah. That would be it. Um, the you know I've been so fortunate with my books. The last one, um, the Dictionary of Body Language, the, uh, the a, a field guide to human behavior. Um, most booksellers have them, uh, obviously on uh, on Amazon and so forth. But uh, if you're interested, uh, you can always visit my website uh, jnforensics.com. Uh, um, and um, but I would encourage everybody, you know, go visit your local uh, book dealers. Uh, they're struggling, and it's always fun to look around. And if they don't have my book, they will get it for you. And uh, yeah. all, all thirteen of them will uh, are, are available. And and I have to tell you, um, some of my biggest fans are in in uh, in Australia, and uh, and I'm very grateful. I'm very grateful for. Uh, for uh, their support over the years. And I'd love to hear from them. And uh, and, and great. It's no wonder, mate, because your content is amazing. It's, uh, we've got an hour of gold there. Don't worry about the three. We've got 60-odd minutes of it. Listen, I was told if I get one, I, you know. <laughs> <laughs> hey, mate, you're almost on the Hall of Fame. <laughs> yeah, well, so I, if, very, I'm very happy. Are, are you kidding? A poor kid from Miami? I, I, I'm, I'm glad I got more than one. <laughs> Well, what we'll do, Joe, I'm just, I'm not going to set the bar for you. If they come back on again, we'll do the show again. If you can nail gold, we may even send you a, a Mojo Radio show soap on a rope. Oh. So I can't, I can't promise Ow. anything. I've still got one in the cupboard. That, that's doable. There yep. is. Yep. Yep. I, we minute. still have one I, in the. <laughs> you know, with with that in mind, we're on for next year at this time. <laughs> <laughs> we're on like Donkey Kong. <laughs> next year at this time. Boy, that, that's, uh, yeah. I'm looking forward to that. Stick it in the diary. Joe, yeah. this has been such 
an enjoyable interview. Absolutely. This has been such a profound and I think terribly valuable interview for people in business, people who are in any type of business in sales, customer service, presentation, for parents, for kids, for learners. Honestly, mate, it, um, Robbo's right. You've just dropped you dropped gold-plated gold all the way through the show. We can't thank you enough for your time. It's been a real privilege and um, look forward to maybe chatting again next year if we get you back on. Oh, most definitely. And, and you know, and I want to thank you for what you do because uh, I, I love people who share knowledge and this is what you do and, and this is – this is precious, and uh, and I thank you so much for it. Well, it's been uh, it's been our delight, our pleasure, mate. And uh, I'm just I'm just thankful the video wasn't working. You couldn't actually see us because I <laughs> yeah <laughs> I reckon our, our tells would have been awful. Yeah, I tell you what. <laughs> All right, I mean it. We'll get together next year. I'd love to. Yeah, you're right. Absolutely, totally. No, done. Yeah, it's done. Always good to have a guest who says I'd love to come back because it doesn't happen that often on this show. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to show you how to make radio. For this, you'll need high-fidelity stereophonic sound. And also a bit of music. And then, of course, Mojo Baby. Yeah! There's one I made earlier. The Mojo Radio Show. You know what would make a fascinating interview next time? Next October? Well, well, he's coming back, which is good, isn't it? Well, it's great. And you know what I thought would be fascinating? To get Noel... Razor Smith back and them together and compare notes. That would be cool. I've got to say, this is a, this is a true story just while you bring up Noel. Yeah. If you are new to our show and you haven't heard our interview from maybe four or five weeks back. The, the last, last one before, before October. 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 Yeah. Yeah. It was with a guy called Noel Razor Smith who spent 32 years in prison in England. Uh, he'd done 200 armed bank robberies and was sentenced to eight life sentences and 80 years to be served concurrently. It was the most incredible interview and probably one of the ones that we enjoyed doing the most. But a true story, Robbo, I didn't tell you this, but last week I did a speaking gig. It was a private speaking gig and I was face-to-face with a billionaire for three hours. Wow. And there's only eight people in the room and one was this guy who is in the top 20 richest people in our country in Australia. And what was interesting is I told the story about Noel Razor Smith and I said, how did you deal with being in prison for eight consecutive life sentences and 80 years to be served concurrently where you said to yourself, I'm going to die? How did you deal with that? And he said, you can't live in two worlds. You've got to completely forget about the outside world and just focus on how do I survive this? How do I get through this? And I thought it was just a really compelling story for us that we we have these dreams or we have these thoughts of the past and we spend our time trying to do the right thing now, but we're really thinking about the future too much or living in the past, but you can't live in two worlds. So I told this story and this guy who really is a billionaire, <laughs> I tell my story and move on and go, just can you tell me more about Noel Rice Smith? <laughs> I'd move on and go, so what you're saying is he was in prison, he'd done 200, and this guy was absolutely fascinated wow. by Noel Razor Smith. And I said, look, I can't tell the story properly. 
just go back and have a listen yeah. to it because it was, it was, was it's just an extraordinary show, wasn't it? Absolutely. And besides which, we could do with the downloads. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we could do with the billion downloads. The Mojo Radio Show. Pop quiz, hot shot. To finish up for October, pop quiz, hot shot. Go. This is a hard one. Really? You tell me that all the time. <laughs> no, no, this is a hard one. Okay. If you get this, if you get this I'll be mighty impressed. All right, let's do it. You two. Mm-hmm. The Talking Heads, mm-hmm. Ultravox, wow. David Bowie, mm-hmm. what do they have in common? Uh, the UK? Close, keep going. Uh, uh, I don't know. That, that would be my, that, that's, that's the only connection I can see. They're all from the United Kingdom and they're all sort of 70s, 80s artists. And all produced by? Ah, oh, Brian Eno. Correct. Yeah. So Brian Eno worked as a producer on albums for all of them. Brian Eno said, and there's a loop here back to some earlier work we did at the Mojo Radio Show, he said, instead of shooting arrows at someone else's target, which I've never been very good at, I make my own target around wherever my arrow happens to have landed. You shoot your arrow and then you paint your bullseye around it. And therefore, you've always hit the target dead center. <laughs> That's a bit of a cheat. So, well, no, this is interesting because the other thing he, that Brian Eno references is Ra- Ralph Steadman. Right. Because Ralph Steadman, as you'll see in the video we posted some time back on the Mojo Radio Show, mm-hmm. he will just put a blotch of paint on the page. He'll go, hmm, that looks like the tail of a brolga. Let's paint a brolga around it. So it starts with a blotch. Right. But then he paints a bird around the blotch. Nice. And that's non-conformist. So Brian Eno might hear a sound. It's like the edge talked about. I heard this sound and went, wow, what could I do with that? So rather than try and write a complete song, he starts with the sound and then writes a song around the sound. And one thing this, if I close the loop on earlier in the show, one thing this billionaire said to me, and I've said, you've always been able to stay ahead of the curve. And he said, Gary, whenever I see everybody swimming in the same direction, I know it's time to turn and swim in the opposite direction. And I work out if everyone's going there, where aren't they going? Where should they be going? Yeah, right. So he's painting his and own target again. Yeah. Exactly. And it's the same thing. And this is a, and you'll find that online, this is a, a nice piece of artwork where this young child keeps pulling arrows, but she keeps missing the target. So what she does, she shoots her arrow and then just builds this oblong, <laughs> oblong bullseye around it. And I went, <laughs> you know, it's kind of cool. It's a bit how we do the show too. We produce something that we, <laughs> we, we start with something, we build a show around, we're starting point. We don't set out to do the perfect show, which is kind of, I think the Obvious. bit that we like about it, we're more Nirvana than we are Kylie Minogue. Yes. And um, you, besides, you look no good in hot pants. Well, I've tried. <laughs> good to say, I've tried. Uh, but you could lose some weight. <laughs> get, get off the Tim Tams. Um, however, so with that being said, you two talking heads, Ultravox, David Bowie, producer's choice. What song takes out? Oh. Now, I was going to go back to the killer thing. I was going to go Psycho Killer by the Talking Heads because I thought yeah. all the U2s. You know what? Or- Rocktober's been such a roller coaster ride. I reckon we've got to go Wild Wild Life. Wild Wild Life. All right. Your choice. We're out.
Mojo Radio Show is produced and recorded in the studios of Voodoo Sound. For more tips and tools to get your mojo working, check us out on Facebook at the Mojo Radio Show or online at themojoradioshow.com. For more about Gary, see garybirtwhistle.com or to polish your next audio or video production, check out voodoosound.com.au and for the right voice, realtimecasting.com. Andrew Peter speaking. See you next time.